Coming up on Tech Nation, Inc. columnist Dr. Soren Kaplan talks about taking a look at your life experience to gain insight and action into your personal and business life. His book is Experiential Intelligence, Harness the Power of Experience for Personal and Business Breakthroughs. Then to the great outdoors, to a place in Alaska where no human has gone, much less conquered. Climber and rescuer Michael Waychart talks about hidden mountains, survival and reckoning after a climb gone wrong. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2018, I was able to speak with Heinz Award winner and pediatrician, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. In her book, The Deepest Well, she writes that the science is clear. Early adversity leads to poor long-term health outcomes. It's true of humans, and it's true of frogs. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. Um, some of the foundation for this work, for, for my understanding of it, really came for, from research that I did when I was in college. And I worked in an uh, amphibian endocrinology lab. We were looking at hormones in frogs. And um, at, we were actually looking at um, the effect of stress hormones on the growth and development of uh, tadpoles. And what was fascinating for me, and uh, it was, you know, this research that I, that I thought back on when I was, you know, f further out in my medical practice and thinking about how stress affects um, development and health, was that um, for, for these tadpoles, what we found was that the piece that was critical was the timing of when they were exposed to the stress hormones. If, if these frogs were exposed to stress hormones right at the time that they were turning into adult um, uh, frogs, then it was actually adaptive. These stress hormones actually helped that metamorphosis happen faster, and it helped these frogs kind of get out of the stressful situation um, which in this case might be a crowded pond, right? And actually develop into adult uh, toad faster, which was great. But for the younger tadpoles, the ones that were not close to metamorphosis, what we found was that um, the, the same level, dose of stress hormones was actually um, inhibited their growth, um, affected their ability to regulate um, essentially the tadpole equivalent of blood pressure is, you know, <laughs> yeah. osmoregulation. Um, and ultimately, it actually increased their risk of death. We have listeners all over the world, and I think they all know San Francisco. Many have actually visited San Francisco, but of those who visit, in all likelihood, they didn't go to that area known as Bayview Hunters Point. Describe that for us. So Bayview Hunters Point is uh, a neighborhood of families. It has um, the 
highest rate of home ownership in San Francisco. It's got the highest number of kids of any neighborhood in San Francisco. It's been historically an African-American predominantly community, although a lot of these demographics are changing now. Um, But it's also a really challenged neighborhood. Um, It's a place where, um, you know, of of all of the neighborhoods in the city, for most of them, heart disease is the leading cause of, of death, right? Um, and for a few, it's HIV AIDS. But in, in Bayview-Hunters Point, the, still the, the leading cause of early mortality is violence. So this is a place where, you know, there are um, shootings that happen on the street. There are drug deals that happen sometimes um, in front of kindergartners on their way to school. And um, it, having had the opportunity to, to spend a fair amount of time in Bayview, it's this amazing combination between some of the most beautiful and some of the most challenging things in our cities, which we have these families, we have these, you know, um, incredibly uh, cohesive, you know, you know, large families where you, you know, have lots of these relationships, but also um, a lot of poverty, a lot of adversity, um, a lot of violence, and, um, and family struggle. Dr. Nadine Burke Harris went on to become the state of California's first Surgeon General. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Inc. columnist and USC affiliate professor, Dr. Soren Kaplan, helps us learn from our own experience, bringing insight and action to our personal and business lives. His book is Experiential Intelligence. Then climber and rescuer Michael Waychart talks about today's technology of mountain climbing and his own life changes while writing of others in hidden mountains survival and reckoning after a climb gone wrong. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Soren Kaplan. Soren, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you. It's great to be here again. Now, a central question that appealed to me, starting with your title, Experiential Intelligence, is a mantra that is not often talked about, not often validated. It's not what you learn in school, which is important, or or what you might learn by personally studying a subject, but do I learn from my experience, and what have I learned? It's a great framing that you just provided, and let me ask you a question. When you think about how you learn to ride a bike, how much of your intellect, your IQ, is responsible for that? Well, since my father taught me to ride a bike, we got to give him some. It could have been his IQ. I don't know. <laughs> but in the end, in the end, I had to, you know, figure out how to do it. You know, that's true. 
Well, let's decipher this a little bit, because when you think about how we learn things, it's usually through experience. And we've known IQ is a factor in terms of how we can operate in the world, emotional intelligence, but we haven't really looked at how experiences both shape us and also how we can use our experiences to to understand ourselves better. So take the bike riding example. When I learned to ride a bike, I just had to try it out. I had to do it. Might have put on training wheels and I was wobbly and then maybe take off a training wheel and maybe fall over a little bit. I learned how to ride a bike through experience. Now, I also, when you look at that experience and we decipher it a little bit, I got the knowledge and the skills. I learned how to turn the steering wheel. I learned how to brake. I also gained higher order abilities. I learned how to anticipate bumps. I learned how to ride defensively in traffic. Those are not just the tactics. Those are real abilities I had. And then how did I think about the bike? Those are my mindsets. I tried to understand a bike from an angle of transportation. I, it got me to and from school. But I also realized bikes can be used for socializing. You can go on group rides. They can be used for touring and exploring places and finding new you know, neighborhoods. So there's mindsets, there's abilities, and there's real know-how in anything we're doing, and that's our experiential intelligence. Now, before we get to talking specifically about that, you talk about what is commonly believed about intelligence. Let's start there. I think we've known or we've believed for a long time IQ, your intellect, is important. And we've had measures for that for over 100 years. And about 30, 40 years ago, emotional intelligence came onto the scene also. And so Dan Goleman, by the book title of the same name, Emotional Intelligence in the 1990s, introduced the idea that we'll be more successful in our relationships and in business if we're in tune with our own emotions and the emotions of other people. Those two forms of intelligence have really instilled themselves in our culture, how we think about what's important uh, for success. Yet, today's world is moving faster than ever before. There's change and disruption and artificial intelligence. And we haven't really had a way to look at how just our life's experiences contribute to the, the street smarts that really give us another form of intelligence alongside those other two. Now, Socrates, of course, told us, know thyself. Uh, and it seems to me your experience is a great informer of yourself, how you act. You said mindset, your mindset, and know-how, which is slightly different. Um, but, but let's talk about that. Uh, what are the, the elements of experiential intelligence? It's got to be more than, well, I won't do that again, but that is a part <laughs> of it. <laughs> well, the way that experiential intelligence, that term came about, is that Robert Sternberg, who is the former president of the American Psychological Association, introduced it as a way to round out how we think about intelligence. But it really hasn't taken hold. And so the way that I look at experiential intelligence in a, in a structured way is that it's your mindsets, your attitudes and beliefs about yourself, other people in the world that get shaped as you're having experiences in life as, as a, at a young age into adulthood. You have abilities, which are really your competencies and your competencies that help you integrate the, the tactical knowledge and skills or know-how that you have with your mindsets. Those are those higher order things that might be things like ability to see patterns in, 
in ambiguous data or to navigate uncertainty effectively, things that are not just about kind of blocking and tackling skills, but are higher order abilities that allow you to function in new contexts that you might get into. You do return to mindset a lot. How much of your mindset was formed unconsciously by your early experience of your family and, and growing up? And that also includes trauma. I, I believe that our mindsets are shaped from the moment we start having experiences, and especially early in life. And you mentioned trauma. Um, my own personal experience is, includes trauma. I had, when I was three, my mother developed a mental illness. Uh, my father was rarely around. He worked multiple jobs. And by the time I was 15 years old, we had moved 16 times. So the same things that traumatized me early on, they definitely shaped my mindsets. And I had to work on overcoming some of the challenges and self-limiting beliefs that they created for me. And at the same time, as I did that, the flip side of healing is growth, meaning I look, I, I can look at the ambiguous environment, the highly uncertain environment, I grew up in where I had to you know, make decisions with very little information or wait to the last minute to, to figure out what I was going to do. Those are the same things that I've drawn upon later in life to do the things I've been able to do fairly successfully, like pivot in new directions when doing startups or live with uncertainty or find patterns in organizational culture to understand how people are operating and reading body language and facial expressions. And so the same things that can can impact us negatively can also instill gifts if we know how to look at both of those things. You quote uh, Stanford psychology professor Alia, I don't know if it's Alia or Alia Crum, who says that mindsets can be self-fulfilling. And I'm thinking here of people who have said to me, oh, I'm the black sheep of my family. Oh, they never thought I was very smart. Oh, I'm sick of them saying I, I lie all the time. It's like amazing things pop out of their mouth when this was your, your role in the family. I, there's, a, there's a notion that the things that happen to us can instill messages that we internalize. And that's really, I think, where mindsets come from. So, for example, if you look at the impacts of your life, the most poignant experiences that you've had, and think about those, what those might be, those experiences, typically you take on messages from them about yourself, about other people in the world. Those messages become your attitudes and beliefs. They shape how you think. And then because they shape how you think, they can shape your feelings, they can shape your behavior, and they can, you can operate in a very, on a very subconscious level without being aware of what you're being driven by. So the opportunity is to become more aware of those experiences that might have been difficult or even joyous, how they shaped you, and then how you want to more consciously show up for yourself and for other people. So if you change your mindset, it too can be self-fulfilling. It absolutely can. And the research um, from Stanford, especially the Mind and Body Lab and Carol Dweck, who talks about growth mindsets, the, the direction of that research is suggesting that what we believe 
actually becomes manifested in our lives. And so it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and the opportunity is to be more conscious of what you believe so you manifest those things. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn and my guest today is Soren Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is a columnist for Inc. Magazine and an affiliate professor at the Center for Effective Organizations at the University of Southern California. A longtime corporate executive with experience founding startups, he's here today with experiential intelligence. Harness the power of experience for personal and business breakthroughs. And I guess we should explain that Ink Magazine is not ink as in tattoo, <laughs> but rather INC, <laughs> ink as in the abbreviation for incorporated at the, at the end of a business name. Um, and this leads me to uh, portions of your book which say that organizations and teams can have uh, uh, experiential intelligence that can be measured, if you will, or, or at least, you know, considered. We'll say that. If you're in an organization or in a team and you believe that people's experiences, not just what's written on their resumes, but their life experience, contains assets that could be valuable to you, which they usually are, then everyone has an ability to understand what their experiential intelligence is that they're bringing to the party and what exists within a team so that you can bring it out. And so there's great opportunities to take a broader view of the talent that exists in our teams, of the cultures that we're creating through leveraging everything that people are bringing. My view is that when people show up at the office door or their home office doors, they're bringing them whole, their whole selves. It's very difficult to leave part of yourself, your personal self at the door. You're bringing things that you're aware of and maybe you're not aware of to the party. And the question is, how do you kind of leave those things behind that aren't serving us well? But then as a team or organization, leverage the things that perhaps are flying under the radar right now, but that really represent assets that are untapped. When you were talking earlier in the book, or writing rather earlier in the book, about uh, sort of our assumptions about intelligence in our society, uh, you noted that we believe that success based on intelligence equates to achievement, social success, excuse me, social status, uh, and material wealth. And I always go back to Guy Kawasaki. He likes to say, I'd rather be lucky than smart. <laughs> kind of dynamiting how you get successful. But lucky is very important. We are talking about a number of intelligences, many of which are not named. And that carries us through to uh, Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Who is Dr. Gardner? Where is he from? And, and what was he trying to look at? Yeah, Dr. Gardner was a, a professor, and he was focused on trying to expand how we look at intelligence. Now, he was trying to complement IQ and challenge the notion in our society and our culture that it's really about your intellect as a measure of success and even a measure of status, I guess you could say. And so 
what Gardner did is he introduced different ways to appreciate people's intelligences. And he, he's got nine intelligences primarily that he's focused on visual spatial, you know, so your sense of direction or your even logical mathematical, which is typically how you would think of IQ, but musical or interpersonal relationships or linguistic or naturalist and understanding nature, pedagogical, which is about knowing how to teach other people things, or body kinesthetic, which is about just knowing how to operate your body in a, in a way, maybe you're a dancer or doing sports. Now, people, or, or the field has had been a little critical because some people look at those things as abilities rather than true intelligence. And I think that whether whatever your view is about what those intelligences are that he introduced, I think the message is that we need to understand what makes us us and what makes us successful in whatever we decide to do and satisfied in whatever we decide to do outside of just being intellectually smart. And that's really what I think the, the importance of his research and work is. And so th that I think that people are starting to recognize that today. And if you look at a lot of the trends in society, we're starting to see how experience really is playing into, into recognizing there's a different way to look at success. You know, I have to tell you that frequently I will have books sent to me. Some, sometimes I interview the author and they're, they're sort of a, a one trick pony when it comes to, to the test there's a test in the in the appendix there's a you have a series of smaller exercises which are in fact tests to sort of help you along analyzing this tell us about what you're helping people decode you like to say that word uh decode and, and the philosophy and, and and what you're testing here I think we all have an opportunity to look at ourselves with a different lens so that we can see ourselves differently and then gain something from that insight. The way in which you can qualitatively, anyone can understand their experiential intelligence is just to look at and do a little inventory of what are those most poignant experiences that you believe had some impact on you? And they can be impacts that are positive or what you might think are negative or big or little, it, it doesn't really matter. It's things that sit with you and maybe drop a little bit of emotion as you're thinking about them. If you look at those experiences and then you look at what are the messages they imparted on me that turned into my mindsets, how I think, and then what did they lead me to do in life and what abilities or know-how did they develop? It's, it's essentially what I just described as a little matrix. It's a four-column matrix, and you just could fill something like that out for yourself and get a snapshot of here's my experiential intelligence, my experiences, my mindsets, abilities, and know-how. So that's a real qualitative starting point, but that really is a great snapshot of oneself and what shaped us and how we are showing up today. And then it goes on and relates it to so many different things, including, you know, where you are with this in terms of understanding yourself, trying to help other people, changing your life. I mean, as you go along, it's, it's pretty interesting that it's more than just, that's just, that's just sort of like chapter one or two or three. It's right in there in the early days. 
there's an opportunity to go deep with your experiential intelligence if you want to. And in my case, I looked at my own childhood, which had a lot of trauma in it. And I wanted to understand how did those experiences shape me and limit what, how I think and what I have been able to do? And how did they give me some strength? So you can look at traumas and you can look at joyous moments, big impacts and little impacts, but the, the opportunity is to just take a look and we can heal from some of the things. And there's research there also in my book about, you know, there's a great book, the body keeps the score, how, how neuroscience is showing that we, from a trauma standpoint, get wired. And then we have these automatic responses. I have another way I look at it because I believe that neurological wiring can happen even with little things that aren't trauma. I call those visceral memories. So if you, you know, are constantly judged by your parent, let's say, and then you get into the workforce and you hear your manager give you feedback, you might experience the visceral judgment from the past that you might not even be aware of. And that might either cause some kind of a behavioral kind of knee-jerk reaction and kind of gets in the way of you and your boss's communication, or it might just make it so you're not open to hearing what some positive feedback is that could make your performance better. So there's opportunities to look at big things and little things and grow from them, heal from them, and grow from them. Well, I can I can totally relate to that. Uh, I've had encountered some people who just the, the moment you suggest that what they're doing isn't the right thing uh, uh, and you're not su- suggesting it that way, they're interpreting in that way. It's like, I, you know, this is really great. I have this whole scenario I run out. But, you know, can I get you to do this differently? Because I'm so limited, but I really need you to do this. And this is the reason, and you know, and it's just like because otherwise it won't go in. And the fact is, you should be able to go to work, be really impassioned, positively moving forward. But if you are reacting, it might be time to look at yourself. That might be stopping what the team can do or what you can do. I think business itself, business culture has had an assumption that we want to leave the personal at the door. And I just don't believe it's fully possible to do that. We might be able to operate at a certain level, but if you really want to take yourself to the next level or take your leadership to the next level or take your team to the next level, you need to address these little visceral knee-jerk reactions that can get in the way of high performance. And I I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're getting there. I I think there's trends around vulnerability. I think there's trends around seeing people as whole people, wellness, that are making room now for this kind of thinking and, and an acceptance of everyone's experiential intelligence. Now, we talked a lot about decoding yourself and how deep you might want to go. Can you decode someone else's XQ, experiential intelligence? That's a great question. Um, I think you can get some clues to it, but let me give you some, maybe some stats that I think are, are important so that we can start to understand why it's going to be more important to formalize some of this stuff. So the percentage of percentage of jobs requiring a college degree in 2017 was 51%. In 2021, it was 
So you have a whole bunch of companies like Google and Tesla and others no longer requiring a college degree for an interview. It's no longer a gatekeeping mechanism. I'm speaking with Soren Kaplan. His book is Experiential Intelligence, Harness the Power of Experience for Personal and Business Breakthroughs. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of the Whole Tech Nation program and standalone biotech segments are available through your favorite podcaster, as well as at technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, daring climbers who got more than they reckoned for. We'll speak with Michael Waychart about hidden mountains. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Soren Kaplan, the author of Experiential Intelligence, Harness the Power of Experience for Personal and Business Breakthroughs. The percentage of, percentage of jobs requiring a college degree in 2017 was 51%. In 2021, it was 44%. So you have a whole bunch of companies like Google and Tesla and others no longer requiring a college degree for an interview. It's no longer a gatekeeping mechanism. So then you have to ask, well, what are we looking, what do we look at if it's not a college degree? Let me give you another stat kind of on that, you know, the, the talent side. The percentage of U.S. adults aged 18 to 29 who view college education as, quote, unquote, very important, dropped from 74% to 41% in the last six years, and that's a Gallup poll. So what we're seeing is that people don't believe, you know, college degrees is important for success, and companies are kind of letting it go a little bit more in terms of requirements. So what are we looking at then? How do we decipher what that experiential intelligence is that will allow someone to be successful in whatever we're doing? And I think it's looking at unconventional things. I think we need to understand what does 
international travel give to someone? I know I traveled to India after college. It blew my mind, opened my mind, gave me a sensitivity to kind of the relativity of certain things, and I think it made me a better um, leader in terms of some of the things that I've been doing. But you can also, so you can look at unique work experience, volunteer experience, travel experience, and start to, if we have people who are applying for jobs, organizing their resumes, so to speak, in terms of their mindsets, abilities, and know-how gained from unconventional, out-of-the-box areas, then we can hire out-of-the-box also, because there's opportunities in with the talent that's out there to find people who might not seem like a fit, but they're actually a great fit for what we want to do. And all of this comes down to our relationships, our ability to navigate relationships and how we might react improperly to something just because of our mindset or our background. Let's talk about the relationship loop. What is that? Whenever we're in an interpersonal relationship, it could be our partner or a group team relationship, there are certain dynamics that seem to surface over and over. And I've understood that um, in the businesses that I've been in and organizations, as well as from a psychology and sociology standpoint. And, and the relationship loop is essentially a, a cycle in which we have thoughts about the interaction. Those thoughts create feelings. It's kind of those visceral knee-jerk reactions, potentially. And then it shapes our behavior. That behavior then is seen by that other party and it can be, again, an individual or a, a group of people, that that behavior is then interpreted from with their lens, and they have thoughts about it. It translates and turns into emotion, and then they respond, and that creates behavior. And then the cycle goes on and on. <laughs> and so those cycles can either be helpful or harmful to your relationships and what you're trying to do with them. And so it's as, it's as simple as that, and it's also a little bit as difficult as that to, to change because you do have to intervene at, uh, at a level of usually the thought um, so that you kind of reframe how you're viewing the whole dynamic. I found it interesting in that it applied to one-on-one -on -one relationships that had nothing to do with business and one-on-one -on -one relationships that had everything to do with business. If you look at experiential intelligence as just a general concept, it's about how we learn. It's about how we show up in the world. It's about how we're shaped by our experiences before business even happens in our lives. And so experiential intelligence is as relevant to education, it's psychology, parenting, family systems, and of course, business. And so the opportunity is to just understand ourselves better in terms of what our experiences have imparted on us and show up in our own relationships, but also be able to create experiences and relationships that are positive and reinforce the kind of interactions we wanna have, whether we're a teacher or a parent or a manager. Well, there's so much more to this book that we haven't gotten to, but I must say that in the end, I very much appreciated you quoting Douglas Adams, who you will all remember from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He once wrote, I may not have gone where I intended to go, but I think I've ended up where I needed to be. 
<laughs> so let's hope we we just help that along. We help it along. I think that that's a good good resolution here. Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and see us again. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Maura. My guest today is Soren Kaplan. His book is Experiential Intelligence. Harness the Power of Experience for Personal and Business Breakthroughs. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. There are experiences and there are experiences. Few have the experience of climbing a mountain. I mean a real mountain. A mountain that has never been climbed before. So that there is no collective intelligence about such a climb. And you are in a completely remote area. Even with all the latest technology, while the climbers may be striving for a personal best, they may instead find themselves facing horrific failure. Michael Waychart is a climber and rescuer. And he is the chair of New Hampshire's Mountain Rescue Service. He's here today with Hidden Mountains, Survival and Reckoning After a Climb Gone Wrong. Well, Michael, welcome to Tech Nation. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, this is a heck of a story you write about, and let's start with a quick overview of the story. Not too much. Don't want to ruin the read. Just enough. And then let's get into the technology of climbing and of mountain rescue, both of which are surprising in a number of ways. So let me ask you first, the hidden mountains, they're in Alaska. Where exactly are they and what's hidden about them? Well, they are a sub-range of what's known as the Alaska Range, which is the uh, range that encompasses Denali and Denali National Park, and they extend southwest towards uh, essentially the Aleutians. Um, And this is a small, mostly unexplored mountain range that's tucked in between the Neocolas and the Alaska Range, and it's largely unexplored. And why are they hidden? They're aptly named the Hidden Mountains um, because really pretty much one or two climbing expeditions have ever ventured there, a few skiers as well, but they're really difficult to find on a map and they uh, have almost no history about climbing whatsoever. And yet in our world, you know, where uh, everything can be flown over by an airplane, seen by a satellite, few humans have explored these mountains. And as you write, peaks so remote, they have no names or history. So people go there, it's like nobody's climbed this peak before. Yes, there's mountains that people haven't set foot on or touched, and it's a pretty remarkable thing in our world, especially in the United States. Now, while Everest is no cakewalk, it's still well-traveled. You know, and the story begins with attempting some firsts in the Hidden Mountains. Two couples, Emmett and Lauren, John and Alyssa, two teams of two climbers, all close friends. What was the outline of the plan? So they had done a lot of climbing together, these two couples, and they had known each other for several years, but they had never done anything quite like this before. And if you're a climber, especially if you're a mountain climber, there's a certain glory 
in chasing first descents, being the first person to climb a route or being the first person to climb a mountain. If you've climbed a mountain that's unnamed, you get to name it. So it's kind of the crowning achievement for most serious climbers. And they had never considered doing this. They had stuck to traveled routes. They had climbed all over the world, but they'd climbed in places that were known entities. And to research and to find a mountain range that had very little activity beforehand and to go as as this team of four as two couples became this sort of dream of theirs and so while they were researching it they they you know homed in on a few objectives that they thought were going to be safe but they really didn't know anything about the mountain range um, apart from what they could find on google earth and on satellite map info so just websites like caltopo.com, and a few sparse reports from other climbers. Because nobody knew anything about this place. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, most places in Alaska, people people were able to take a, a bush plane into a glacier, and they ultimately were landed miles away um, and had to sort of fight their way to the peaks themselves. So I think I read in the book that it's safe to say that this little sub-range, the Hidden Mountains, is one of the most remote mountain ranges on Earth. And to climb, to climb in these peaks, obviously you're more or less on your own. And this self-reliance that climbers crave um, is completely necessary for doing this type of thing. Well, they had to take two trips with this pilot to drop them all off with their supplies. How far away from civilization were they when they were dropped off? They were, I think, about 50 miles. I would have to check, but they were about 50 miles away from any type of civilization and so inaccessible um, that really a helicopter would be the only option of getting them. And helicopters are not permitted to land inside Lake Clark National Park except in an emergency. And so they couldn't take a helicopter in. They had to walk. So one phrase hit me. Uh, we're talking about mountain climbing, but I came to a full stop with the term options for descending. I guess <laughs> if you go up, you must come down. You might not come down the same way. Right. You might not come down the same way. And when climbers start up a mountain, they have uh, what we call a rack, which is a certain amount of gear. Um, there's spring-loaded camming devices, which were invented about 30 years ago. There are ice screws, which are literally tubular screws that you screw into the ice. And nowadays, a lot of routes have expansion bolts that are drilled into the rock. So when you go to a place like Yosemite, um, Others have left anchors, and when you thread a rope through these anchors and repel or lower yourself down, it's a lot easier to descend. On a mountain that has seen no ascents, you're reliant on whatever you've brought to get down. And so climbers try and climb up a technical or difficult route, and then they need to figure out how to get off a peak, which is really stressful. And they say that many accidents happen on the descent. And it's a, it's a pretty difficult thing to work your way off of a complicated mountain. And when you summit a peak, uh, you're really only halfway done. Now, we're talking specifically about alpine rock climbing. How is that different from other types of climbing? 
Well, alpine rock climbing and alpine climbing in general is far more serious because you're climbing in an environment where you can make no mistakes. Um, if you're climbing in a gym or if you're climbing outside on a popular rock climbing at a popular rock climbing area, then you can fall, you can you can make those mistakes as you learn. But once you get into an unforgiving environment like that, you really can't screw up at all because um, the consequences are dire. Um, if you fall, you're probably going to get hurt. Now, what's good granite versus bad rock, and how do you know going into it? Good granite is probably what climbers love the most. And Yosemite is a great example of an area where climbers flock to climb on good granite. It means that it's quite solid. You can fall on it and it's quite enjoyable to climb. When you get into what climbers call choss, it's when a mountain is literally falling apart and you either need to wait until it's frozen to climb or you need to be extremely careful as you're making your way upwards. There are bands of bad rock throughout Alaska. Um, they're usually horizontal, so you can climb on good rock for a little while, and then suddenly you encounter something that's this nightmare to get, get up and work your way through. You can't really know that it's good or bad until you get up there. And despite what you might see in binoculars or from photographs that have been taken from an airplane, that's part of the challenge of climbing a first ascent. Now let's talk about some of the technology. What is InReach? That's a capital I, little n, big R, E-A-C-H, InReach. Well, an InReach is a satellite texting device that is made by the company Garmin, um, who acquired the InReach from the company DeLorme several years ago. But what it allows to do it it works off of a satellite signal, and there are several other models from different companies, a spot beacon, for instance, that lets a hiker or a climber know, uh, I'm sorry, that there are several models, and they all allow a hiker or a climber to send a text via satellite where there's no cell reception. And the upshot is that anybody can know and contact you no matter where you are. This is a very different way of embarking on an expedition than someone like Shackleton, who was out of contact for sometimes years at a time, and they're becoming far more prevalent. But the InReach is probably the most popular model of this device in America. It weighs about three ounces, and uh, it's extremely easy to use with a Bluetooth connection to your phone, so you can send a text just like you would at home. And in your planning... You you program in your, your fellow climbers. You program in the people you want to, to know at home or be in contact with at home. And then all the rescue services, those are all in there. So if you need them, you can get them. That's correct. And there's also, in addition to that, um, you know, the ability to pre-program in numbers that you might need. There's also a, an SOS button, which is a literal button. You toggle back and forth to unlock, and when you press it, emergency services are located, or emergency services are alerted to your position, and they enact some kind of rescue response. Um, the old model of InReach had a problem where this was turning on in people's packs and rescues were being called when rescues were not necessary. 
However, the new model is a little a little more um, they've they've troubleshot it enough that it's fine now. But um, it essentially allows somebody to call for a rescue anywhere in the world at any time. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Michael Waychurch, a climber and rescuer. He chairs New Hampshire's Mountain Rescue Service. He's here today with Hidden Mountains, Survival and Reckoning After a Climb Gone Wrong. Well, you mentioned Yosemite twice, and I probably haven't told anyone in a very long time I used to be Miss Donut in Yosemite Valley. One summer I worked there, and I was this the only place you could get donuts, and I'd be in at 6 a.m. selling everybody donuts. And, you know, we got the firemen, and we have the guys who work at the gas station, and we have a lot of climbers who start early in the morning and hikers. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I sold a lot of donuts. But the climbers were really interesting. I mean, they'd take a drill and drill holes in their toothbrush so it was lighter. I mean, there's like, they will do anything to make things lighter. Tell us, what do you do? Well, um, I don't bring a toothbrush. <laughs> well, that was my solution. What are you bringing a toothbrush for? <laughs> yeah, we um, oftentimes on a climb, you'll, you'll omit one sleeping bag and share a sleeping bag with your climbing partner. Um, we, we tend to really, really be... Uh, strict about what we bring on a climb because when you're pulling yourself up every ounce counts as we say so the lighter you go the faster you can climb and the more you can climb but the less stuff you have if something goes wrong you write that the average american consumer has been sold a bill of goods vis-a-vis technology buy this and you can survive anything what are you talking about there well i think that we have a very interesting notion about rescue and we're afraid to be victims in other places like the Alps um, you can you can call for rescue and there's a little bit less of a stigma around it for instance guides will factor in uh, rescues in their trip planning a lot of the time there's a dedicated rescue service in places like Chamonix and in the United States, we love the mythology of self-reliance, but at the end of the day, as I think one of my sources in the book, who's a local guide, told me, you're never going to find somebody with a broken leg who's self-reliant. And the true safety buffer with any outdoor activity is experience and knowledge. And you can really get by with less equipment than you might think based on uh, how much you know. And you have to be very careful with getting your feet wet and knowing how much you can bite off and how much you can't. And unfortunately, the mountains especially are a rather unforgiving environment. And there are plenty of accidents. You know, if you screw up bowling, then it's not a big deal. But if you mess up when you're mountain climbing, obviously, uh, it's it's a much more strict learning curve. And you can also buy rescue insurance. In fact, you should. Yes, you should. Absolutely by rescue insurance. And there are places like New Hampshire, where I live, where you can buy what's called a hike safe card. You can buy a hike safe card and the money goes towards New Hampshire Fish and Game, but it also doesn't allow Fish and Game to charge for a rescue. And so you, they can't prove negligence in that case. And Global Rescue is a national rescue insurance company that 
will come get you anywhere in the world and they cover the cost of a rescue up to a certain point. Is it really expensive? I would have to check whatever the cost is. I think it's pretty minimal compared to the cost of a helicopter rescue in a remote mountain range. Now let's talk about rescues. You're a rescuer yourself. Are these just volunteer climbers? I mean, they've been there or is that a whole field onto itself? I am. And one of the things I talk about in the book is in the United States, volunteer rescue organizations make up a bulk of climbing and hiker rescues. So in New Hampshire, where I work uh, on our mountain rescue service, we are all volunteers who assist the New Hampshire Fish and Game when we are called. Um, In places like the national parks, climbing rangers perform the bulk of technical climbing rescues, but it really depends on where you are and where you're hurt. I find that many Americans assume, and I've heard this when we go out and find somebody in the middle of the woods or on a cliff, many Americans assume when they push an SOS button or when they make a phone call that they're going to be rescued by a helicopter. And when we show up five or six hours later and tell them either to start hiking again or we try and get them off a cliff, They don't realize how slow and difficult a process it is. So the thing that's happened is that rescues in the United States are still based off of a framework that was put into place many years ago, whereas the technology has eclipsed um, the sort of capacity that we have as volunteers to go out and search or save people. Well, as you have guessed in this book, in the main story, Um, there is a helicopter rescue, and I was shocked to see that the helicopters go back to a (laughs) C-130 circling out there to refuel. I mean, we would expect this in a huge military operation in the middle of the world someplace, but just to rescue an individual climber? Yes, that's right. And the the, uh, 176th Squadron out of Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage is one of the most elite rescue units in the United States, and they are a military unit. They go all over the world, and they perform uh, rescues in combat zones. But at home, they use the Alaska Range essentially as training for these military operations overseas. And so um, when the climbers called for rescue, they were very they were very lucky to have uh, the 176 squadron coming for them. Now you would think that a fortunate part of this story was that they were in Alaska at a time of year that essentially has light 24 hours a day. But then there was fog. How does a rescue change in the fog? Well, one of the things is that the pilots need in mountain topography they need line of sight to fly because it's so complicated. If you're flying over an ocean, um, it's obviously flatter. But in the mountains, one single uh, mishap can be really serious. And so they can't fly unless they can physically see, despite having advanced GPS technology, of course, on the helicopter. And so they had to wait for hours and hours and made multiple attempts to pull the rescue off. We can all understand that your own climbing experience has has shaped you. But how are you different now, having written this book? 
Well, I think this book forced me to look at things that I potentially didn't want to look at. Um, there is a darker side of climbing, and we often tend to shy away from it. And I tried to grapple with that and put personal stories in the book because everybody parses that very differently. And when I spoke to other people who had been rescued, one of the things that struck me was that if you've been climbing for long enough, chances are you have a story that's equally harrowing or a rescue that's equally daunting. And sometimes the outcome is very unfortunate. And when I wrote this book, it essentially made me get into my own head about how I climbed and I stopped uh, climbing in the mountains while I was writing it entirely because it it forced me to confront things that I was able to shut out before. And so it absolutely changed me. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Not, not a surprise. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much, Myra. Climber and rescuer Michael Waychart chairs New Hampshire's Mountain Rescue Service. His book is Hidden Mountains, Survival and Reckoning, after a climb gone wrong, is published by Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins. The New Hampshire Mountain Rescue Service is a volunteer organization which serves climbers and hikers who require assistance in and around the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Its primary team has six team leaders and 39 team members, while its secondary support team counts 30 experienced volunteers. They operate 24-7 in all seasons. In the words of one team member, the Mountain Rescue Service isn't recognizable except for on a trailhead at night by headlamp. And if you're in trouble out there, a headlamp never looks so good. More information is available through its initials, nhmrs.org, New Hampshire Mountain Rescue Service.org. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.